Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hawaii Kai Church, and thank you for joining us in worship. And at this time, I invite you to take out your Bible or a Bible underneath the chair in front of you and turn to the book of Luke. We are in Luke chapter 7 and verse 35 as we continue our study through the book of Luke. Luke chapter 7, verses 35 through 50 is our passage. And that passage can be found on page 864 if you are using a church Bible. Page 864. Luke chapter 7 and verse 35, but before we look at the text, would you please join me in prayer? Father, we come before you and, and we confess just how much it is that we need you. Uh, it's easy for us to lose sight of who you are and, and lose touch of how much it is that you love us. And it's often that we can lose perspective on, on what it is that really matters. And so we ask, Father, that you would please uh, open our eyes and prepare our hearts for what you have for us in your word. Uh, we ask that by the Holy Spirit, you could make these truths real to us and, and you would make your love and forgiveness uh, transform our very lives. Please do these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. We come to a text this morning that shows to us the connection between forgiveness and love a connection which has not yet been explicitly highlighted in the book of Luke thus far. Luke here in our text is very explicit about love being the motivating force for the actions within our text. Now Luke has highlighted and shown to us account after account of great faith, the marvelous belief of the leper who runs to Jesus and falls down before him even if the rest of the watching crowd disapproves of him. Luke has showed to us this powerful hope that a paralytic and his friends share that they dig up the roof of someone else's house so that it might lower their friend just to get that much closer to Jesus because they believe that he is the only one who can help him. Luke has shown to us this amazing faith of the Gentile centurion who confesses, I'm not even worthy to have you come into my house, Jesus, but just say the word and I know my servant will be healed. You don't even have to be there. Your word is enough because I understand your authority, which Jesus marvels that this kind of belief and this kind of faith doesn't exist in all of Israel. And so there have been several instances of a noteworthy and explicit faith. But it is in this passage before us that we have a beautiful account of a deep, deep love. And while that love is, of course, related to faith, Luke is especially explicit here about a worshipful love which is intimately intertwined with an understanding of God's great forgiveness. That the most sinful can somehow love Jesus the most extravagantly. And the one who has been the most horrendous might actually have the most powerful affection for him. And it's at the same time interwoven throughout this account that the most self-righteous and moral and clean, the most religious, the ones with the fewer sins, so to speak, can also be filled with the most powerful kind of contempt for Jesus and what it is that he stands for. We have one who loves wonderfully and another who does not love at all. And we read in verse 36, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, 
And you went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. We have in these verses one of the most graphic displays of a love-filled worship that we have in the entire Bible. And it comes from one of the most famously wicked people in her own community. We have a great, affectionate, humble, uh, worshipful love from a very notorious sinner. And the structure of the sentence in verse 37, behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. This is a brief description of this woman who is characterized by the very public sin in which she is known for. And the sentence begins with the word behold because it is utterly astounding that this person would have the gall to come into a religious Pharisee's property. And she is a woman of this city. And I remember a police officer once telling me that he didn't want to work in the same city in which he lived. He said, you want to leave your work at work and come home to a place where that work doesn't follow you, he explained to me. And that's an honorable job when you perform it rightly. But this woman did not travel to somewhere else where no one knew who she was. For this woman is known by every single person in this city, for she, the text describes, is a sinner. And this is not in the sense that everyone is a sinner, but this is in the sense that her sin is notorious and it is very public, and thus this title characterizes her. You know, much of our own sins are are very private. The only ones who know about them often share the same room with us or live in the same house as us. And even they, they might not know the entire story. Many commentators think that this woman had been a prostitute, making money off of sexual services, potentially destroying relationships, and fracturing marriages in the process. Luke does not say this explicitly, but everyone in the city seems to know of this woman's lifestyle. And yet she still boldly comes to find Jesus. I wonder if any of us would do the same. What if the entire city somehow knew the very worst things about you? What if the people in this very room knew all of your most wicked thoughts? Your angry outbursts that usually only happen in the privacy of your own home. Your, your lustful thoughts which occur in the secrecy of your own mind. What if that were all laid out in the open? Your greed, your jealousy, resentment, how you really feel about some of the people you are supposedly close with. Maybe there is that skeleton in your closet that no one has access to, which you've tried to bury deep away or escape from, maybe leaving the town that you used to live in to flee from your past if everyone knew all about it. I think it'd be hard to try and go to Costco. This woman right here, her worst sins are known by everyone in this city, and yet we find her coming boldly to the place where Jesus is. To do something like this, you have to really only care about the one person there because everyone else is going to give you them judgy eyes. 
and scornful looks, which represent hearts which despise you. But she boldly comes to the place where Jesus is, even if that place is at the house of the most religious and judgmental man. She comes onto the very property which is owned by a Pharisee who would never, ever associate himself with someone like her and never, ever have her over to his house. And the scene is such that reclining at table means that the table was in the center and people would kind of lean in on these couches or cushions with their left arms and they would eat with their right arms and their feet would radiate outward from the table and they would eat and talk and eat and talk and it was often the case that when the religious gurus came into town or traveling rabbis and teachers would come to eat that that conversation would occur in the courtyard so that other people in the community could stand around that table and listen and eavesdrop hoping to catch some pearls in this case, because the Pharisee's guest here is none other than the carpenter's son and the miracle worker and the preacher who preaches like none before him, Jesus, this crowd would have been a bit denser because of all of that buzz and especially because there's been this tension between the Pharisees and Jesus himself where they want to get rid of him, which means even more so that this woman has to squeeze herself through the people to get closer to Jesus and endure that scorn and that shame when the watching crowd begins to realize who it is that is making her way through the crowd. But to this woman, it's as if the scene goes entirely dark. And the spotlight is only upon Jesus. And nothing else and no one else seems to matter to her at all. And coming near to him, she begins to weep. She's inches from the feet of the Son of God. She sees his back and she begins to weep. Matthew Henry calls this action her deep humiliation for sin. She stood behind him weeping. Her eyes had been the inlets and outlets of sin, and now she makes them fountains of tears. And so this is not a single drop rolling down the one side of the one cheek. This is a fountain, for these tears are dripping off of her face and falling onto the dirty feet of Jesus, which had not been washed at all. And the language is such in the original, that Jesus' feet are becoming drenched because of the large amount of tears. And as those tears flow more and more, this woman is on her knees and those droplets begin to create streams penetrating the filth of Jesus' feet. I don't think that these tears are something that she planned. She didn't bring a towel with her. I don't think she planned to do this at all. But there's a spontaneity in being this close to Jesus that the situation and this proximity just squeezes out what is already on the inside of her heart. And what is within her heart is this deep, deep affection for him. That that milky mixture of dirt and tears saturating the bottoms and tops of Jesus' feet and here without a towel, she lets her hair down, which is a social no-no. You don't do this in public, but she doesn't care. She lets her hair down to use each and every strand of it to wipe off. Many of us would never do something like this for the people that we love most. It's just too beneath us. My kids' feet are nasty. But even more, while she's wiping those feet clean and weeping those tears, she begins to kiss Jesus' feet. And the tenses are such, 
weeping continues and the kissing is over and over and over again because the filth of Jesus' feet is nothing compared to the filth that had once resided within the depths of her own heart. Again, I don't think that she had any idea that Jesus' feet were going to be unwashed when she got there. Especially at a dinner party, the host would usually provide a basin of water and even a servant to his guests to wash their feet and anoint their heads with oil. This washing had not been planned, but what is planned is this alabaster flask of ointment, which he brought with a purpose. And if it's nard, which is uh, indigenous to this region, this flask of ointment would have cost about what the average person made in an entire year, which means that this is the most valuable thing in her possession. And she breaks open that flask and anoints not Jesus' head nor his hair, but she anoints those very feet as if to declare that the least bit of you, Jesus, and the lowest part of you, Savior, is worthy of the most precious thing that I own. This is not just a few drops and save the rest for later. This is not 10% of that bottle. No, it is all for you, and it is for no other. This is a picture of love for Jesus. That it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. It doesn't matter who I even am or what my past has been. That being near to you, Jesus, elicits this kind of response and gratitude and worship that I want to give you my best, my most precious, the very things that hold the greatest value to me. I want to pour all of that at your feet, Jesus. I wonder if your heart for Jesus is one of great love. And it doesn't matter what my peers think. It doesn't matter what kind of judgy eyes I may encounter along the way from the people who don't understand in my trek to get as close to Jesus as possible. That all I am and all I have is his. I wonder if there is something more valuable to you than he is. His cash, this career, this relationship I can't let go of, this reputation I've worked so hard to build, can't be embarrassed now. Is there something too valuable to you that you just can't pour it out entirely at the feet of Jesus? Do we love Jesus, brothers and sisters? Do we understand what is at the very heart of true worship. And so it is that we have in these verses one of the most graphic displays of a love-filled worship that we have in all of the Bible. And it comes from one of the most notoriously wicked people in her own community. And it's utterly beautiful. But we continue for an altogether different kind of response from one who sees no beauty in this anointing of Jesus at all. And in verse 39, we read on. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. But when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. 
Now which one of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. There are those who are utterly appalled at any kind of lavish worship and any kind of extravagant love for Jesus. And there will always be those who witness these kinds of things and see no beauty in them at all. Simon the Pharisee, who is on the opposite end of the social spectrum as this unnamed and very sinful woman, his reputation is that of being religious and blamelessly moral, upstanding, exemplary. There are no skeletons in his closet and no controversies in his past. Otherwise, he could not be a Pharisee. And what goes on in a person like Simon's mind as he has this sort of internal conversation with himself in verse 39, if this man Jesus were a prophet, he would have known. He would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. Simon's revealing these twin assumptions here. First, that a real prophet should know who this woman is, because prophets have keen insight into the human heart and supernatural knowledge that even if Jesus were not from this neck of the woods, if he were really a prophet, he should know who this woman is. And with that assumption is another that a real prophet, knowing how sinful this woman's life had been, a real prophet and a holy one sent from God would never, ever associate himself with a person like this. And if he felt her touch, he'd pull back his feet and recoil because her nasty touch is filthier than my filthy feet. Therefore, Jesus is not acting holy at all. And therefore, Jesus cannot be a prophet he is not sent from God. This case is closed. And immediately it is that we understand that Simon is having Jesus over, not because he's bought in or because Simon is a follower at all, but because he's skeptical. If I'm testing you, Jesus, and I'm actively looking for reasons why you're not who the people claim that you are. And with a smug grin, if not on his face, at least in his mind, we Pharisees are justified in our rejection of Jesus. Now, the irony is this. Jesus does have insight into Simon's heart. And he has a supernatural knowledge into his private thoughts. Because Jesus can answer his internal dialogue. Because Jesus knows exactly what is happening in Simon's mind. He is more than a prophet. And Jesus knows exactly what goes on in each of our minds. And he has insight into all of the contents of each of our hearts. And Jesus, in response, gives to Simon a parable about two debtors. And these debtors are both exactly the same, except in the size of their debt. But both debts are substantial. One owes a debt that is a couple of months of wages. That's substantial. The other, ten times that, a couple of years of wages. But they both have a debt, and they both cannot pay that debt. They both don't have the means to do so, and both in this parable are forgiven of that debt. Their debt is canceled, which never happens. Try and get your debt forgiven. Call Visa. It's not going to happen. And people in this day and in this age as well are more likely to get the law involved than to forgive. And the question Jesus asks is which one of these debtors will love more, the one with the greater debt forgiven or the one with the smaller debt forgiven, to which it is obvious to Simon and to us and to everyone else here that, of course, the one with the larger debt 
will love larger, so to speak. And this is exactly the principle, that we each love Jesus to the degree that we think our debt to him is large, that we have a strong affection for the Son of God in direct proportion to how sinful we truly believe we really are. If we think Jesus' forgiveness of us is not that big of a deal because we didn't have that much to be forgiven of in the first place, then we're not going to love Jesus all that much. But if we think Jesus' forgiveness of us is the biggest deal of our lives because we owe the biggest debt there is to pay, then our love for Jesus will skyrocket. Thomas Watson, the Puritan preacher, he famously said, till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. And in this text, we find a notoriously sinful person who now finds her sin to be so bitter. And therefore, she's weeping all over the place because she comes into contact with the sweetest one there could ever be. And her love for Jesus is astronomical because she understands a forgiveness that she could never earn and a debt canceled which she could never pay. And she feels her debt to be astronomically large and the only one who can make any of this possible is this Jesus before me and I just want to wash and dry and kiss and anoint his feet with all my heart and with everything that I have because it is that we each love Jesus to the degree that we think our debt to him is large. Forgiveness of that debt, forgiveness of that sin is intimately connected to how much we will love him. You know, one of the reasons why I think the Bible talks about sin so much, I mean, it's on every single page. Either the word appears or someone is sinning. One of the reasons why I think the Bible talks about sin so much is to elicit this kind of love within our very own hearts. Because when we come face to face with it all, we will either sit in denial that our debt is not really a debt at all, or we'll realize more and more just how much Jesus truly is a friend of sinners, and just how much it is that he has given himself to us in love. You know, one of the reasons why I think many churches do not want to talk about sin all that much is because they think, honestly, that talking about sin too much is not going to draw the people to Jesus. That's not how you get people to love Jesus. And therefore, the messages and the music are such that Jesus didn't come to pay a debt. Jesus didn't come to absorb the wrath of God against sin upon the cross. But merely, instead, they use language like Jesus wants God's best for you. Jesus wants God's highest for you. And you're broken, weak, but you're still a prince and a princess. And Jesus loves you so much that he died for you. But why did he have to die? Well, because he loves you. But why does Jesus have to die on the cross? Well, to prove how much he loves you and how important you are to him. And the concept of sin is entirely absent. And then God's love for you is measured in how much he hooks you up after the fact with the things that you want or the fulfillment he gives you. And it produces no real or deep love for Jesus at all, but only a love for Jesus to the degree that he gives to me what I want. But the gospel message is in stark contrast that Jesus dies, yes, because he loves us. 
But that love is shown in that Jesus dies to pay our debt and to forgive us our sin. He pays it by his own shed blood. He endures the wrath of God that our wickedness is owed because our sin accrues a punishment. But Jesus forgives our sin by taking upon himself our punishment and taking upon himself the iniquity of us all and even becoming sin for us in our place. This is how he chooses to die. But Jesus rises from death to life to prove that his offering on our behalf has been accepted. The full and final payment has been made. And the power of both sin and death are broken. And that any who believe and put their trust in Jesus will be saved now and forevermore. The love of God only makes sense when we realize our wicked condition. Listen to Ephesians chapter 2. I'll just read it to you. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Who is that? Devil. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That ain't a pretty picture. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, that's Jesus, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages, and see forever, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. This is the very heart of the good news. This is the very gospel. This is why we sing songs like we did this morning. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, and now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. I mean, you turn on Christian radio today, the songs never sing about how we're wretches. They don't. That doesn't sell, doesn't sing about how we're tremendously sinful or deeply wicked or coming from evil, but it is more that we're just broken, we're traumatized, we're victimized, we're just needing love and attention, which is why I think that there's so little love for Jesus in the contemporary church today, where if a person were to weep and all of a sudden give all they have, and so the most valuable thing they owned, all for the cause of Jesus, lavishly as worship, it would be considered fanatical more than love, impractical more than exemplary. But the principle is, again, we each will love Jesus to the degree that we think our debt to him and our sin against him is large. And we will have a strong affection for the Son of God in direct proportion to how sinful we truly believe we really are and how much we believe we've really been forgiven. When we lose sight of where we have come from and have lost sight of our own sinfulness, we forget this distance that God has come to forgive a people like us and the magnitude of grace and love within the gospel. That is when our love grows very cold and worship then becomes routine and our relationship to Jesus very stagnant. Simon the Pharisee did not see his debt at all. 
And if there was, it's about yea small. And therefore, he cannot love Jesus Christ, nor can he even love the sinful woman at his feet. When we think our debt's this, it's a lot easier to become judgmental in every relationship, whether it be a neighbor, whether it be in marriage, whether it be in our parenting, whether it be with the difficult ones at church, when we start to lose grasp, that grasp of this gospel, we don't become lovers at all. And so it is that there will be those who respond to forgiveness with lavish worship and extravagant love for Jesus, and there will be those who witness these very kinds of things and see no beauty in them at all. For they refuse to and do not understand the great debt and deep sin which needs God's forgiveness. We continue in verse 44. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Jesus here champions this woman. His is the only opinion that counts. These are the words that this woman longs to hear. Jesus' affirmation of her worship. I think the body language is critical here, that even though Jesus is still talking to Simon, he's not even looking at Simon anymore. He turns all of his attention to the woman at his feet and looks deeply into her with his eyes. And Jesus is contrasting their two responses out loud for all of them to hear and for all of us to hear. One loves Jesus, the other does not. One feels her debt, the other doesn't even really think he has a debt. One knows she is a sinful person, the other is self-righteous and doesn't associate himself with people like her. And therefore, only one person truly understands what it means to be forgiven. And I want you to notice that on the outside, at least, this Pharisee actually has an outward respect to Jesus. Come eat with me, sit at my table, come to my house, let me pick your brain, let me listen to your words. But there's no heart for Jesus. I mean, he doesn't even do the least bit that ancient Palestinians would do. No washing feet, no oil on the head, not even greeting Jesus with a kiss on the cheek. And there are many within the church who are exactly the same, that there's this outward kind of respect and honor for Jesus without any heart affection. J.C. Ryle, he says this, we shall do well to remember the case of this Pharisee. It is quite possible to have a decent form of religion and yet to know nothing of the gospel of Christ. It is possible to treat Christianity with respect and yet to be utterly blind about its cardinal doctrines. It is quite possible to behave with great correctness and propriety at church and yet hate justification by faith and salvation by grace with a deadly hatred. It's not enough 
to merely be outward respectful of Jesus, respect, respectful of him, without our hearts being changed. But in contrast, again, this woman, and I think it's noteworthy, that she remains unnamed, although Simon is named. Her sin is public, it's notorious, everyone knows all about it. We actually don't know anything about it because it's as if her sinful past is now irrelevant and her name is not her most identifying marker from this point forward. But her love for Christ is what defines her even more than her title. That the things that used to characterize and define us as Christians and the sins that dominate, used to dominate our lives, they don't dominate or characterize us anymore. And Jesus' judgment of her here, therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many. He's not denying that fact. He's not lessening that fact. He's not sweeping that under the rug. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he, is, he who is forgiven little loves little. It may sound like she's forgiven because she loved much, as if somehow that love earned that forgiveness, but the parable prior shows that the forgiveness came first, and therefore the love flowed out of that forgiveness, and it is here that the depths of her sin, which she had understood, and the greatness of forgiveness, which is hers in Jesus Christ, is what fuels her love for Jesus. Her sins are many, and they are forgiven, therefore she loved much, this is the order which is very important. 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us, which is confirmed in the statement which Jesus makes that her faith has saved her. Not her love. Her faith has saved her. And Jesus wants here to make sure that she knows that that is actually the case. You know, for some people who have lived a certain kind of life, it's almost impossible to really believe that I could be forgiven. For those people who are really in touch with their hearts and truly understand the depths of their sin, sometimes we just need that extra reassurance from Jesus that your sins are forgiven because it's almost impossible to believe that they ever could be. And Jesus makes sure that she knows here your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. Now, as we come to the Lord's table on the second Sunday of the month, the question that the people there are asking, who is this who even forgives sins? You know, Simon is right about one thing. The holy is repulsed by the unholy. The perfect, sinless, they can't come near the sinful. But as we come to the table, this is exactly why Jesus is so beautiful to us. The holy decides to come near the unholy. The Son of God decides to become humanity. He spans the distance. He comes to us, and by the giving of his own body and the shedding of his own blood, he can wash away all of our sins. He cancels the debt of all who believe, and he forgives those who put their trust and faith in him by giving all of himself to us and for us. And this is where the woman is right. It doesn't matter who we are or what we've been in the past, but we can approach God boldly because of Jesus Christ. Would you please pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for Jesus. And we know that the truths in this text, 
we're not going to really believe them into the depths of our heart unless you, God, by the Holy Spirit, convict us of these truths. And so we ask for amazing grace and remarkable mercy that you would make the truth of your gospel believed by each of us in this room. You would show us the depths of who we really are and at the same time show us the depths of your amazing grace that we might love you even a fraction of how much you loved us. We ask these things for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.